this morning, I thought it appropriate to begin with the story of Richard Vermbrand, which I'm sure many of you are already familiar with him, but uh, he is the one who established Voice of the Martyrs, um, the ministry that I've already mentioned that is about the task of making our awareness of the persecuted church and mobilizing prayer for the, for the um, persecuted church and making that paramount um, for the Christian community, especially in the Western world. Richard Vermbrand, again, he was the one who started it. So he, he was a pastor in Austria who was kidnapped in 1948 on his way to church, on his way to lead services for the morning. Um, he was kidnapped by the secret, by the communist secret police of Austria and then held for eight years. Um, that, that would only be his first imprisonment. He was held for eight years, three of which, three of those years were in complete solitary confinement, which their solitary confinement, I I don't imagine, is quite the same as our solitary confinement. Um, No windows, no access to outside, no light, so complete darkness for three years. Um, No sound. In fact, the guards even wore special felt slippers so that when they walked through, through the halls, they would make absolutely no noise. Um, Vermbrand got in the habit of uh, had gotten the habit of sleeping during the day, so that he would have the freedom at night to be able to speak. And in his speaking, he chose to preach sermons, specifically, primarily to himself. This was a way of attempting to persevere in the midst of such extreme trials. Why? Why was he in solitary confinement? Why was he in prison? Because he was a Christian. He was a pastor. He had been faithful to continue to proclaim the name of Christ to preach. And not only that, but he was also helping those Jews who were going through trials in the midst of this. And so after many warnings, after many warnings, the secret police showed up at his doorstep and took him. That was, that was eight years. He was released after eight years. And what, what do you think he would have done? I mean, if it had been me or many of us, I think I would have fled. I think I would have found someplace safer. Someplace, I would have gone and done something else. But not Vermbrand. He immediately jumped back into the pulpit and continued to preach, though he had been commanded not to, ordered not to. He continued all all over the course of time. His total imprisonment ended up being about 14 years. And especially during this latter imprisonment, faced all kinds of tortures, mutilations, brainwashing, just on and on. 14 years. During the course of the time, his family had been told that he had died in prison. His wife had been told that she was widowed. She also was imprisoned at various points in time as well, all along. He, if you're interested to hear more about Richard Vermbrand and his story, he wrote a classic book called Tortured for Christ. Um, it's an autobiography, uh, just about everything that he's experienced. I've read it. It's, it's an amazing book. I highly recommend it. When he was eventually released from his imprisonment, he, he, he traveled around the world, beginning to make people, beginning to make the church more aware of what their brothers and sisters were facing around the world, and the, the trials and the persecutions and everything everything that they were going through. He wanted there to be an awareness, and he wanted to mobilize prayer. He eventually came over to the United States, and he actually even testified before the U.S. Senate about the evils and the atrocities that he had experienced under communism. Um, in, the midst of his, uh, in the midst of his debriefing before the Senate, he actually took his shirt off to show them his scars, to show them how bad it really was. And then, and then he began his ministry. 
it's easy to feel like this, short, this sort of physical persecution is distant from us today. We, we feel insulated from it. We feel like it doesn't actually, doesn't actually happen. Maybe, maybe we even feel like that this happened in the first century, but certainly it doesn't still happen today. But it was only 73 years ago when Richard Wurmbrand was was kidnapped. It was only 73 years ago. So, so, so some of you actually were alive at the point in time when this happened. And not only did this happen to Richard Wurmbrand, but this still happens around the world. Many Christians face physical persecution on a regular, ongoing basis. Wurmbrand writes this in one location of his experience in torture on one particular occasion. He writes, When it was at its worst, when we were tortured as never before, a miracle happened. A miracle happened. So as I was reading along, and I got this point about this miracle, I was like, ooh, what happened? Like, did, did the doors of his prison, did they fall off? Was he able to go free? Like, was there an angelic being that showed up? What is this miracle that happened? A miracle happened. We began to love those who tortured us. That's the miracle. We began to love those who tortured us. Just as a flower, when you bruise it under your foot, rewards you with its perfume. The more we were mocked and tortured, the more we pitied our torturers. That is miraculous, isn't it? That's what we want to look at today. We want to look at the Christian response to persecution, or more specifically, more specifically, what it looks like to be blessed in persecution. That was the way Wurmbrand described it. Blessing in persecution. The passage we're looking at today comes out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses, uh, verses oh, sorry, chapter 3. <laughs> My notes are wrong. Chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. If you go ahead and open up your Bibles, again, that's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. We'll read through our passage together. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you shall suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You do it with, a, with uh, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, and uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that as we, as we sit in your word, Father, that you would open it to us. Father, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts in such a way that we would see your glory and your majesty and your beauty as we are in your word today. Father, that it would reveal the depths of our sinfulness, the depths of our need to change, the depths of our need to repent. But Lord, at the same time, your beauty and your glory. Father, please convict us with the power of your word today. I pray that you would guide my words as I speak. Father, that they would accord to your word, Father, and that they would faithfully communicate all that you've given us this morning. Father, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So we're continuing on then with our series of First Peter, exploring what it looks like to be firm in the faith. We've seen throughout the letter that Peter is writing to believers who are dispersed throughout Asia Minor, or what we would call modern-day Turkey, to encourage them in the midst of their persecution, their persecution and the trials that they've been experiencing. They've got to keep the faith so that while persecution has been in the background of our sermons as we've gone through the weeks, now the persecution actually moves to the foreground of what we're discussing. We're going to see it front and center in our passage this morning. These believers, these brothers and sisters, they need to know how to deal with this sort of persecution. How are they going to continue to live a faithful Christian witness in the midst of this? At this point, their persecution probably looks a little more along the lines of social ostracism, shaming, discrimination. There's probably threats. There's probably some element of physical persecution as well, although at this point in time, it wouldn't have been on an empire-wide wide scale so that they're not actually dragging Christians in for the most part. However, it certainly is happening occasionally at this point in time. It is likely that they are aware of those who have already been physically harmed because of their testimony of Christ. But more, system, more systematic persecution was certainly coming to the Christian community, and they needed to be prepared for those events. Peter begins in verses 8 to 9. Peter begins verses 8 to 9 by encouraging the churches to pursue the qualities that are so essential to the unity of the body. They needed to be unified. They needed to be sympathetic to one another. They needed to have a love for one another to show humility. These things are always ways of living out the faith and increasing the unity of the body because as they're going into the midst of persecution, they needed to be a unified church, not a divided one. And then Peter cuts to the meat of it in verse 9. How then are we to respond to those who revile, who verbally abuse us? In the ancient world, the answer was obvious. 
If someone hits you with their words, you hit them back with your words, or maybe with a fist. Um, you, you didn't take that sort of thing in the ancient world. Um, to, to have that shame thrown on you through verbal insults, uh, that was something you would never just roll over and take or take on the other cheek. Now, things have changed quite considerably in our world. Oh, wait, they haven't, right? We, we, we still don't want to take it. If someone hits us with the words, if someone mocks us or makes fun of us or accuses us, we want to hit them back verbally, right? But that's not. That's not what Peter calls us to. Peter says here that we're called, we're purposed here. Instead of, instead of giving back revilings, we're called to bless we're called to bless. And I think this comes from Jesus' teachings in Luke 6, 27-28, where Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Peter here calls us to bless. Oh, Christians, we are called for this purpose, which is really easy to do, right? When we like the person, or when people say nice things about us, it's really easy to bless when someone's telling me how great I am, and wanting to spend time with me, and etc., etc. But when, they, but when they, they want to harm me, but when they want to do evils towards me, but when they want to do these things, we are called to bless, even when we're wrong. And this is radically different from what we see in this world, right? This is radically different. This isn't how the world responds when it's hurt. And if we're being honest with ourselves, this doesn't sound very enjoyable. This isn't something that's like, oh, that's, that's exciting. Sure, sign me up for that. That sounds great, right? That, that's not the way we respond to hearing about this exhortation. It, it's it's counter our instincts. It flies in the face of what our culture and our world even celebrates. Blessing those who persecute, who wrong, who do evil. But Peter doesn't stop there. He provides a purpose, too. He provides a promise. A promise that comes through being able to bless when reviled. Our, um, now, our blessing... Our blessing that we're promised here, it's not the same as the blessing that we give to others, right? There's two different blessings that are happening here. There's the blessing that we give to others, but then there's the blessing that we look forward to. When, it, when our passage talks about us blessing others, most specifically, it's actually referring to prayer. It's actually referring to how we should be praying for others. And when I say praying for others, I don't mean the sort of prayer that's like, Lord, bring judgment upon them and destroy them, and I hope that their life falls apart. And It's not that type of prayer. It's not that type of prayer. We, we do see those prayers sometimes in Scripture, but that, that's not what, what's being called for here. Rather, what's being called for is the sort of prayer that actually seeks their well-being. It actually seeks their benefit. We're called to pray for them in that light. But the blessing that we're going to receive is even far more significant. It's far more beautiful. It's far more glorious than that. And it's unpacked for us in verses 10 to 12. Verses 10 to 12 is a quotation out of the Psalms, specifically Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. Now, in the context of Psalm 34, David, King David, had been on the run. He wasn't, he wasn't king yet. He had been on the run from his predecessor, King Saul. 
Um, David, at this point in time, had already been promised that he was eventually going to be king. In fact, he had already been anointed by the prophet Samuel. And now he was just kind of in this holding pattern, just waiting for the Lord to accomplish his purposes and for him to finally actually step into the role of being king. And in the midst of that, Saul has been persecuting him. It's funny to actually go through and read the account because you, you'll see Saul lose his temper and like throw spears at David randomly in the room. And then, uh, and, and then he kind of gets over it and moves on. And then he gets mad and he throws spears again. And so we have a, we, we've been going through in our family devotions and we kind of have a running joke of like you never want to see Saul with a spear because he's going to throw it at someone eventually. Um, he even ends up throwing it at his own son at some, one point. Sorry, that, that, that's a little tangent. But uh, so all that to say, David is hiding from him at this point. And one of the things that David does in an effort to hide is David actually goes to his enemies and pretends to be mad. He pretends to be crazy. He goes and he like writes on the walls and lets his saliva flow down his beard. And so everyone thinks he's crazy and he's safe and no one's concerned about him. And, and this is the context in which he writes Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. And so there, in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of being hunted down by someone who wants to kill him, right? in the midst of all of this, David writes that we should not revile our enemy. We should not speak evil against them. Um, that, that there should be no deceit in what we are doing. That we should do no wrong to those who, who, who persecute us. This is what he records in the midst of all of this. In the midst of Psalm 34, this is what he records for us. But then he goes and he tells us the blessing. And it's an amazing blessing that we may see good days, that we might find peace, that we might enjoy God's ear and God's face. These are all images that point ultimately to our communion and enjoyment with God. The blessing that we wait for, the blessing that we receive is far more significant than anything else this world has to offer because the blessing that we receive is God himself. Both, both now in the present and in our present enjoyment of him, but even future. There's a, there's a future inheritance that this passage envisions. And not just this passage, but all of First Peter so far has been envisioning. A future inheritance that we look forward to. Even going back to chapter 1, verse 4, this future inheritance, a living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And it's so amazing and so glorious that we should be able to endure. If we truly had a right perspective of how amazing that was, we could endure here in the present, in the present trials that we experience. Um, maybe some of you are familiar with the name Polycarp. Um, if you're not, then it probably sounds really weird. It's not a fish. It's a person. Um, Polycarp, he was a bishop of Smyrna, which is also in ancient Turkey. We're talking a lot about Turkey today. Um, he, he was a bishop of Smyrna. He lived from 70 AD to 155. Um, it was said that he was actually a disciple uh, of John, of the apostle John. I mean, so, so 70 AD was when he was born, likely. So this isn't too long after 1 Peter is written. So, so just to kind of put all, that all in perspective. Um, so he, in his life, got to see some of the mounting pressures that are beginning to be described in 1 Peter uh, that come to more fruition during the course of his life and ends up living a martyr's death um, because he was described as an atheist, um, which in the ancient Roman world, to be an atheist means you, you don't accept the Roman gods. Um, because he was accepting only one God, 
the one true God, the one living God, he therefore was an atheist. Does that make sense? So, so because of that, so because of that, he was executed. Um, so, 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 so the Roman troops went to get him. When they got him, he, he stopped them and he said, can I just have time to pray? And he was so warm and so gentle and so welcoming to them that they, they allowed him that dispensation, that time to be able to pray. Um, at, at the end of that time, which it's recorded that he prayed for a couple of hours, so they probably regretted it at some point. At the end of that time, they, they began their journey to Rome. He, uh, a number of times, his Roman captors grew, grew so fond of him that they tried to talk him out of his stance on Christianity and tried to encourage him just to... Just give, just offer praise to Caesar. This isn't the end of the world. Like, do you know what's going to happen to you if you don't worship Caesar? And if you don't worship the Roman gods? And he said, yes, I'm very well aware of what's going to happen to me. Over and over again, they they sought to get him to change his mind. And he responded there before Caesar in the Roman Colosseum. In the the Roman Colosseum, he responded, 80 and 6 years I have served him. Him, Christ. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They proceeded to burn him. They, they brought the wood, they lit it on fire. They, they actually went to, to, to stake him to a pole in the midst of the pyre. He told them he didn't need it because he was going to stay there. He knew his lot. He knew exactly where he needed to be. So they didn't stake him, and he stood there. And the fire didn't consume him. The, the, the guard ended up having to drive a spear, a dagger through him to finish him. But one of the things that really stood out to the crowd at the end of the day, one of the things that really stood out to everyone was the marked difference between Polycarp and his response and those Romans who had persecuted him. Right? The difference ultimately being that Polycarp knew he had something far better. He had a God who had never done him any wrong. He had a God who had saved him. He had a God that he waited for. Polycarp understood that there is something that we look forward to that is far more beautiful, far more glorious than anything this world has to offer, even in the midst of persecutions. And we have that same hope We have that same blessing that we long for. And it's so great that it overwhelms everything else. This hope then sets sets the stage for how we are to respond in the midst of persecution. Having this hope before us changes how we act in the present, in the here and the now. It provides us a path to blessing. But what does that path look like? Verses 13 to 14, Peter writes, Who can harm you? Well, that's kind of a funny sentiment. This is Peter, mind you. He, is, he has seen persecution. I mean, really, anyone can harm you. My, my five-year-old, my five-year-old kicked me in the shin the other day. That harmed me. I felt very harmed by that. So, so, so apparently, pretty much anyone can harm me, Peter. What are you talking about? Um, well, of course, that's not what he's talking about. It, however, you, you could imagine a well-intentioned Christian reading this verse and walking away with this, with this concept that no harm or no wrong or no trials or no sufferings could possibly come to the Christian life. 
Yet, to walk away from this verse with that completely ignores the rest of 1 Peter, ignores church history, ignores what happens to the other apostles. It would be ignoring too much of our context. So I, I don't think that's what he means here. Rather, I think what he means here is that harm will indeed come to us, but there is a greater distant future that we look forward to where nothing can separate us. Paul writes about this this way, Romans 8.31, though we face hardships in this world, nothing will be able to overcome us on the last day. The most important point, our future is secure. It's locked in. And no one can take us, no one can take it from us. No one can separate us from the love of God. No one. No harm can come to us. And in light of that future, then we have this path, a path to blessing. Paul gives us five descriptions of what this path to blessing looks like. First description comes out of verse 14. We are told to not be afraid. To not be afraid. Life lived in light of the future doesn't allow us to fear this world. Now, when it talks about that, it's not talking about some naive boldness, right? We've all seen people driving down the road who apparently have no fear as they swerve in and out of traffic and speed and everything else. I don't think that's what he's talking about in this passage when he says that we're called to be bold. Right? That's just foolishness. That's naive foolishness. That's not bold. Rather, he has something else in mind. But, I mean, let's be honest, brothers and sisters, there are so many of us that are crippled by fears. We have fears about the future. We have fears about our health. We have fears about our finances. We have fears about politics. We have fears about work. We have fears about our kids. We, we, we have so many. We have social fears. We're afraid of what people are going to think of us. We have so many fears. It's easy to be hemmed in on either side by these fears and to almost feel trapped. We feel like a captive to these fears so that we don't have the ability to live out what Christ has called us to. He has called us to be bold. He has called us to be bold, to not be those people who are, who, who are fearful. And mind you, this is coming from Peter. This is coming from Peter. We're just back in John chapter 18 that we read recently. He denied Christ three times because he was so gripped by fear. This is that same Peter who then later on, after the Holy Spirit had come upon him in Acts chapter 5, he, he's brought before, before the Jewish leaders and they tell him to not preach Christ anymore. And what does he say? He says, I have to follow what God has called me to. I have to do what God has called me to. So he continued to preach. The consequence of that was him being beaten. And the consequence of that beating was that he rejoiced. He rejoiced because he had found he had been found worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ's name. This is the same Peter from both of those accounts. So he writes to us that we also are called to be bold and to rejoice. Second, Peter tells us in verse 15 that in our hearts we need to honor Christ. Honor Christ in our hearts. Now, that word for honor, it can be translated a couple different ways. It could, it could also be translated as, as sanctify or to make him holy, to make him holy in our hearts. And basically, the idea here is that we are setting him apart. We are revering him. We are putting him in a high and lofty position so that everything else revolves around him. 
We are called to live a life that evidently displays Him as our priority, first and foremost. And specifically in our hearts, because in the ancient world, the heart was seen as being the center of the person. So everything else flowed out of the heart. What you said, what you did, what you thought, all of these things flowed out of your heart. So to set Christ up, to make Him holy, to sanctify Him in your hearts, means that He affects everything. So that as you live your life, as you go to work, as you go to school, as you go to, uh, to hang out with your friends, so that in everything that you do, it would be evident that Christ is affecting all of these areas of life. So that, so that as you're persecuted, as you're mocked, as you're made fun of, as you're shunned, remember Christ. Christ is your greatest calling. He's your highest. He marks everything. So I'm not responding out of, my, uh, out of my innate desires. I'm not responding out of my frustrations. I'm not responding out of my anger. But I'm responding instead out of Christ. Third, this honoring of Christ should include being prepared to make a defense for your hope. In other words, while you're enduring trials without fear and prioritizing Christ, it's naturally going to provoke people to say, Why? Why? Why, why, why are you responding this way? I just saw this happen. I saw this person make fun of you. I saw this person do things to you, mean things to you. I saw, I saw your job get put on the line because of your boss who doesn't respect your Christian values. Why are you blessing them? It should be evident to those people around us so that when they come to us, and they will, if you're living that sort of lifestyle, they will come to you and they will ask you, why? And you are called to be prepared to give a defense for that, to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And why? What is the reason? Because of the gospel. Because God. Because God, because God is so glorious. Because he's amazing, because he makes it worth it. And then, and then you go on, you tell them about Polycarp, or you, you tell them about Vermbrand, or you tell them about, some, or you tell them even better yet, you tell them about Jesus. You tell them about how much greater he is than insulting back, than tearing that person down, than responding in kind to that individual. Because he is so much greater. Fourth, and this is, this is still verse 15, the last part of verse 15, not only are we called to make a defense, are we called to give a reason, but we are also called to do it with a certain attitude in a certain manner. We are called to do it with gentleness and respect. Do you want to know how to really make a real impact in the world today? Do, do, do you want to know how to look radically different from this world and what this world celebrates? Be gentle. Be gentle and respectful. That isn't celebrated in this world. Those are the sorts of things that will get you made fun of. Because we don't like gentility. We don't like it. We don't celebrate it. We don't write movies about it. We don't... I mean, we, we want to stay away from it as much as possible. Rather, we like surly and brash and harsh. Those are the sorts of things that we're naturally drawn to. And that's the things that our culture celebrates. But God has called us to something radically different so that, so that when we're persecuted, so that when we face these, these trials and these hardships and we give a reason, we give a defense, 
Um, it, it's not one that's angry. It's not one that lashes out. It's not any of these things. It, it's not one that walks away and is like, ah, I told them. I taught them a lesson. They're, they're, man, they feel dumb now. That's, that's not, that's not, that's not what he's, we're called to. We're called to be gentle and to respect those that we're giving a response to. Now, mind you again, who is this coming from? This is coming from Peter. Okay, so if you're familiar with Peter, he cut off someone's ear. And now he's telling us to be gentle. That's amazing. And so where, where, where did Peter learn? Peter cut off a guy's ear. Come on. And now he's telling us he learned this from Jesus. Because that's what Jesus told him. That's not my way. That's not my kingdom. That's not what I want. Jesus rather told him, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Believers, if we are followers of Christ, we also should be gentle and lowly of heart. We also should reflect that reality. Fifth, verse 16 tells us that we, that we are to do all of this with a good conscience. Meaning, we are to do all of these things, all of these things that we've mentioned in a way that is above reproach so that there can be no legitimate accusations or charges brought against us. Surely, people will make things up. Absolutely. There's no way to get around that. But there should be no credible reasons for them to come after you. Right? And this is the way we grow. This is, this, is the, this is the lifestyle. This is the path to blessing. This isn't just a stoicism where we just suck it up and take it and just do the right thing until ultimately we die and then life carries on for others. This isn't what this is looking forward to. There's a purpose that this is working towards too. Verse 16, so that your persecutors will be put to shame. God will finish it. He will bring all things to account. All things will be made right. There will be justice. There will be justice someday. But not only, not only justice for those who persecute, not, not, not only will all things be made right there, but verse 14, again, we look forward to a blessing. We look forward to a blessing. We enjoy it now, but there's still this future blessing. Enjoying God more in the present and persevering in our future hope gives a testimony to the world. These hardships make our delight in God all the richer. The more that we are ripped down in the midst of persecution, the more that we face trials and struggles, the more we actually grow into that blessing, the more we are able to enjoy it all the more. It's like when you, it's, it's like when you work out or play sports or whatever. Your, your muscles, your muscles need to be strengthened. And the only way for your muscles to go through that strengthening process, that hypertrophy that they need to go through, is through the muscle fibers being ripped down. Did you know that that's how you get stronger? Your muscles are actually ripped down. The fibers are ripped so that, so that as, they, as they take in protein, as they get the rest, as they get everything they need, they can actually grow back stronger. It's the same way in the Christian life, brothers and sisters. As we are persecuted, as we go through trials, as we experience all these things, the blessing that we enjoy here in the present grows all the sweeter. You can see that when you go and look at Vermbrand's life. 
Rembrandt wouldn't give any of his persecution up because he experienced Christ more sweetly than he ever had in the midst of his trials, in the midst of his torture even. This is the way we grow as Christians. But how can this how can this path how can all of this lead to blessing? How can tribulation ultimately bless us? How can those who revile us how, when will they be put to shame? What correlation is there between suffering rightly and our future hope? Christ. Christ is the provider of our blessing. We see that in verses 18 to 22. Verse 18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Notice the first line there. He suffered once. It only needed one time because his death was completely sufficient. Nothing else needed to be added. Nothing else needs to be added now. Nothing else will need to be added in the future. What he did was completely sufficient there at that point in time. He doesn't need to continue to make atonement. Um, He did it for us. Even though we were unrighteous. Even though we were unrighteous, he did this for us. There was nothing desirable about us. It's not like he looked upon us and was like, oh, they're, they're really swell and great. Sure, I'd do that for them. There was nothing desirable about us. He did it for the unrighteous. He took the penalty that we deserved, and he brought us to God. He died in our place. He rose. He was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit because death could not hold him. Peter goes on to write in verses 19 to 20, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, many of you through this last description as we were talking about Christ dying once and and him bringing us to God, many of you were nodding your heads because many of you were familiar with that and said, yes, that makes sense. That resonates with me. I understand. Your nodding stopped when we read verses 19 to 20 with good reason. It's a difficult passage. Um, Martin Luther, the great pastor theologian from the Reformation, in the uh, 16th century, he described, he, he, he described these verses this way. He said, verses 19 and 20, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So I, I, I very happily uh, concur with Luther. I, I'm not totally sure what he means here. Um, there, 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 are, there are a few very standard views. I'm not going to enumerate the views um, because they, they, they get heady and they get long and you do want to leave at some point. Um, so, so, so I'm going to fast forward to my view, to, to my understanding of this passage. I believe this passage is speaking about Christ's actions after his resurrection at his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Verse 18, the last thing we saw was his resurrection described at the end of verse 18. He was made alive. Verse 19 then begins chronologically after his resurrection. So he went, which means, which means I believe he's exalted, he's ascended, he went. And that exact same word then is also used in verse 22 where it's clearly referring to his ascension. Um, there it says he has gone. So he went, he ascended. So the resurrected Christ ascends, and what does he do when he ascends? He 
preaches to imprisoned spirits. Right? He preaches to imprisoned spirits. Now, uh, imprisoned spirits is also a difficult thing. What's being referred to there? Um, some people feel like it's referring to individuals, to actual people. Um, it would be very uncommon for the plural of spirits to be referring to individual people. Um, typically, when that occurs in the New Testament, that word is referring specifically to angelic beings. Um, here in our context, I think more specifically, fallen angels, or as we typically refer to them, demons. Um, so I think in this passage, this is post-resurrection. He has ascended to the Father, and now he is preaching to the demons, so to speak. Or even more specifically, per verse 20, these are the d- demons that experienced judgment in the flood, who had sinned in the days of, uh, who had sinned in the days of Noah back in Genesis chapter 6. And what is this preaching that he's doing here? I don't think it's preaching for their conversion. Rather, it's, it's a proclamation of what he has just accomplished. It is finished. It is finished. Uh, so this is an exaltation. He, he, he's exalted. He goes through trials. He goes through hardship. He goes through persecutions. And he experiences exaltation, blessing. And in the midst of that, he then proclaims over the demons, over those who had opposed him, those who had stood against him, he proclaims, I am victorious. It is finished. It is all done. You have failed. This is, this is a picture then, both of what Christians experience in their persecution, in their trials, but even more significantly, even more significantly, it points to the fact that he has done it all for us. He has done all of this so that we can stand with him on that day, so that we can look forward to a day when we are with him in his presence, enjoying that future glorious inheritance. And it's not because of us. It's because of him. And it's because he has brought us to God. Paul says very similarly in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Triumphing over them in him. He has defeated his enemies. And then, so, so this isn't a second chance for the demons, but this is a resounding declaration of their downfall and their defeat. So Christ has suffered persecution, he's rose, and he is exalted over his enemies. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Baptism which corresponds specifically to Noah and the flood and his deliverance in the midst of that, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter has taken us out of one difficult passage, and then he plunges us immediately into another one, which I think is why Pastor Jason is not with us this morning. Um... So, so, so what exactly is he referring to here when he describes that baptism does not, or baptism saves us? I do not believe that he is referring literally to baptism, that baptism saves us. And there are a number of reasons for that. One in particular, because it flies in the face of everything that he said about salvation so far. One, three, about specifically salvation coming through Christ. One, three, he, Jesus, has caused, or sorry, the Father has borne us, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. 
through the resurrection of Jesus. How are we saved? Through the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, chapter 1, verses 18, 18 to 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but how are we ransomed? With the precious blood of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 24. By his wounds you have been healed. Whose wounds? Jesus Christ's wounds. And then just a couple of verses ago, verse 18, that he might bring us to God. Jesus Christ, that he might bring us to God. So at no point in time has Peter entertained that we need to merit something, that we need to work something, that it comes from us. It would fly in the face of everything that he has said so far. And not only what he has said so far, but what he also goes on to say in this verse. Because just to make sure there's no confusion, Peter tells us that he's not, that he's not talking about washing in water. He is not talking about a bath. He is not talking about the removal of physical dirt from our bodies. He has something different. He has something metaphorical. He has something spiritual. He has something greater in mind when he says this. Maybe you don't know, but our, our baptismal, I, 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 called, I called Jim Malco, who, who kind of oversees and makes sure we have water in our baptismal every year for our baptismal service. So I called him and I checked with him just to make sure. I, I asked him, okay, so do we fly that water in from Jerusalem? It, 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 and he clarified no. And so, so then I proceeded to ask him, well, do, do we have special um, um, holy monks who come out and then bless the water for us? And he clarified no to that either. Uh, and so, so, so we, we went around like this. As best as I can tell, based on what he said, the water that we use to baptize you, it's hose water. <laughs> Makes it sound really sacred and holy, right? The point being that the point of baptism, the, the, the what's being accomplished, has nothing to do with the water. It has nothing to do with the water. It has nothing to do with the physical act. These physical acts don't save. Jesus Christ is the one who saves. And just to make sure, just to really drive the point home, Peter goes on to state, Peter goes on to point out that, that in the next clause, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So again, it's about the resurrection of Christ. It's our appeal. It's our putting our faith in Him, in His death, and in His resurrection that brings salvation. This is the same salvation by grace through faith that we meet in Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-9. to Peter's point with all of this is that Jesus Christ is the provider of blessing. He suffered under persecution, but He was not defeated. Rather, persecution brought victory and pain brought triumph. And just as Noah was brought safely through, we also have nothing to fear because Christ, because Christ will bring us safely to God. He has done it all, all to Him I owe. We have no place else to turn. Most of us haven't faced the sort of persecutions that, that we've spoken about this morning as we look at people like Polycarp and Vermbrand. But that's not to say that persecution isn't alive and well in our society. It certainly is. It certainly is. 
you probably likely have faced it in various other ways, whether it be from social ostracism from your neighbors, whether it be at school, you teenagers um, who are left out or who are made fun of because you don't participate in the same things that your other peers do, Um, whether it's at work, when you're asked to do things that under Christian conscience you cannot partake in, whether it's in politics, whether it's your family, you all have likely faced some form of persecution at various times. So just because you haven't faced physical persecution doesn't mean that this message this morning doesn't apply to you. But I do want to finish with a quick couple of points of application. Quick couple of points, and then we'll pray. First, just as we've already done this morning, remember those brothers and sisters that you have around the world who are going through physical persecution. Remember them. Continue to hold them up in your prayers. They need, they need their brothers and sisters to intercede for them. Continue to hold them up. Number two, don't underestimate your own trials and persecutions. While, again, this passage is focused more on physical persecution, it's not all about, about physical persecution. It does talk about reviling and language and being mocked and things like that. You certainly are experiencing this. So are you practicing this path to blessing in your life? Are you making a response? Are you responding in gentleness and in respect? Are you... You get the point. Number three, prepare. Because it's likely worse persecution will come at some point in time. I am not a prophet. I'm not saying that it will certainly happen, and I'm certainly not giving you any dates. But we need to be prepared, certainly as Christians, always prepared to face harder and worse. God has called us to reverence him and to make him holy by showing him as being the center, as being the pinnacle of everything in our lives. And honestly, very few things can do that as well as persecution and trials and suffering. It's times like that that our true hope, that our true joy that our true comfort really becomes the most clear. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you continue just to move and to act and to draw people to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us, Father, for whatever you are bringing about. Lord, in the midst of, in the midst of revilings, in the midst of being mocked, in the midst of these things, Lord, that we would respond according to what you have given us in your spirit, Lord, that we would respond correctly. Father, that we would respond in a way that shows that you are glorious. Father, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes out of Jude, verses 24 to 25. Please stand. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. 
There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.